Hi, and welcome to episode 151 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. This is the first episode of 2021. And although I wish I could say that 2021 has been off to a great start in the world, I can't, of course. But what I can say is that with regards to the podcast, I've got huge plans and I'm going to bring to you many episodes this year. So that's good news for you, I hope. To start with today's recording, episode 151, as I said, we talked about making weight, primarily in combat sports. And my guests today were Dr. Carl Langan-Evans from Liverpool John Moores University and Joe Matthews, a PhD researcher from Nottingham Trent University, who's also a lecturer at Birmingham City University. And boy, was it a great conversation, if I do say so myself. I really enjoyed talking for what felt like a good hour and a half. I haven't checked how long the episode was yet, but we talked about what making weight actually means to be differentiated from losing weight, for example, but also why just simply achieving that magic number on the scale on fight day is not the best way to achieve weight when it comes to being a highly effective combat athlete. And we unravel all sorts of components of the science and I guess the practical side of making weight for combat athletes. We talk about nutrition primarily, of course, but we do talk to a certain extent about some of the training and other lifestyle components that will play a role in this. And we get into factors like, I guess, the fine line that there exists between achieving rapid weight loss and rapid weight gain. That is such a crucial and critical issue when it comes to making weight. We talk about the implications of not getting it right. Factors such as energy availability and relative energy deficiency in sport and the male athlete triad, of course. We talk about the impact of feeding and hydration strategies. And we just generally talk about what we know and what we don't know. It is, as you will hear from the guys in today's conversation, still a a new area despite boxing or martial arts, UFC, etc., being many decades old, especially with boxing, when it comes to the science and what we know in that regard, it's still pretty new stuff. And there's much to be gained from both sides of those spectrums. And we really get into that. So I hope you really enjoy that conversation that you are about to hear the main recording for. But before I do that, just a couple of bits of news. Of course, you'll know if you have been following us on social media that We are very excited to announce that Professor Kevin Tipton has joined us at the IOPN as our Director of Science and Research. He was, of course, the last guest I had on the podcast in December 2020. I will be featuring Kevin regularly on this podcast series, so you're in for a real treat there. Loads to be learned from Kev. I have a variety of other things that I will announce in the coming weeks and episodes. But just a quick plug, of course, for what we do at the IOPN. We're not just about this podcast, of course. We really are focused on training and educating practitioners, people who are focused on applying the science into practice when it comes to sport and exercise nutrition. There, of course, is our main program, our diploma in performance nutrition, 100% online and is very much practice focused. As I said, you can check that information out 
on our website at the IOPN.com, where you also can find our practice management and nutrition coaching software platform that is called Sempro. And that has been designed to assist sport and exercise nutritionists, performance nutritionists, and nutrition coaches working with active people with both the tools that they need to actually run their practices, scheduling appointments, charging fees, uh, all that sort of stuff. But in particular, the tools you need to actually work with your clients, particularly in an online coaching uh, environment which many of us are currently doing so we provide you with tools to be the best that you can be everything from habit and behavior change tools to meal planning our new performance plates feature all sorts of stuff so go check that out via our website under the sempro tag and of course our we do science podcast you can find the links to the podcast website where you will find transcripts to all of our episodes all links resources papers and so on and all the relevant podcasts that I've done over the years that relate to each episode, you can now find linked under the relevant podcast episodes. So anyway, that's enough about that and all the things that we do at the IOPN. You can now enjoy my conversation with Carl and Joe all about making weight. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. Today, I am going to have what I know will be a fascinating conversation, which I will tease you as being about making weight. But before I get into the topic in more detail and why I feel this would make for a great discussion, I've got two experts for you today in the form of Dr. Carl Langan-Evans and Joe Matthews. Now, you guys know yourselves better. So, Carl, why don't you give us a quick intro as to who you are, and then we'll move on to Joe, and then we'll get on with this. Well, thanks, Lauren. Yeah, so I'm Dr. Carl Langan-Evans. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow based at Liverpool John Moores. So currently, I'm working as part of the Science and Sports Performance Solutions team with Professor James Morton. I have a background predominantly in combat sports when it comes to making weight as a former athlete, former coach, and then... I completed my PhD in and around that area and have been very fortunate to, to publish over the past decade around that as well. Brilliant. Joe, tell us about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Lawrence. So I'm a researcher and lecturer at Birmingham City University in the Midlands. Doing my PhD part-time with Craig Sale and Kirsty Elliott Sale at NTU. But away from a PhD work, I've been working as a sports nutritionist in combat sports for just under a decade like Carl, been fortunate to publish a few papers in the field and some contribute to a few changes that have occurred in the last few years. So I think that's a concise summary. Brilliant. Well, I'll extract as much as I can out of you guys because you're both well-placed and you're both well-placed for this conversation for several reasons, not just because you're both doing research in the area that we're going to discuss, but also you both work with athletes in this and also Carl if I remember correctly there was a time when you were probably more flexible than you are now correct definitely yeah that's true I used to compete in a combat sport called taekwondo was relatively successful as a junior I was lucky to represent Great Britain at the junior Olympic Games where I won gold and then it all went downhill from there Lawrence (laughs) but yeah in and around that I suppose where my interest for this area peaked into the academic now as a former athlete, I used to have some major struggles with making weight, as I'm sure we'll get into later on. And it was becoming increasingly difficult in the latter part of my career. So I've kind of made it almost a personal mission to be on the opposite side of the coin and try and help those who are in similar situations. 
I'll come back to that because I think that's particularly relevant to why I wanted to talk to you guys in particular. Joe, do you have any particular interests on the other side of the manuscript or the microscope or biopsy needle with combat sports? Yeah, so no junior gold medals for me, unfortunately, <laughs> but I did try my best. I started working with combat sports, mainly from a fan of boxing, which I followed pretty much all my life. And growing up on the South Coast, I was based in Portsmouth and Portsmouth University have a pretty decent boxing team. So I started working with them as, as soon as I possibly could. And then that gradually transitioned from the amateur boxers into the amateur and pro MMA really lucky in my early stage to have some good coaches and people around me that really helped me be working in the field a little bit ahead of where I should have been. So it was a steep learning curve. And from then, yeah, carried on with the MMA, some kickboxing, some Muay Thai, worked some Muay Thai athletes, pretty much spread across the board now. Brilliant. I've worked with fighters over the years. Uh, I'm retired from practice now, but I just have really quite incredible memories of working with some heavyweight boxers and some light heavyweight UFC fighters, which for me at the time was just such an eye-opening experience because I personally have, unlike you seasoned combat athletes in one form or another, I have really no combat athlete background myself other than uh, I like watching it on television or movies and that's about it. But I think from your perspective as researchers and practitioners and my obsession with trying to find knowledge that is truly the best source of knowledge or the most appropriate or relevant source of knowledge to inform practice as a performance nutritionist or to help inform researchers wanting to help inform practice through their work. Just quickly, I know it's certainly not a prerequisite to have spent any time necessarily undertaking a particular sport to be able to research or understand it or work with with athletes, I've certainly worked uh, very successfully with all kinds of, of athletes. I've never actually done those sports myself, but it does give you a unique perspective. Carl, given your background, how has that informed your work to date? Yeah, I think it's a very good point. Me and Joe have actually talked about this before in the past. You almost get a little bit of immediate respect because you've, inverted commas, you know, gone through the process yourself. You kind of have an affinity and and understanding you've done it rightly, you've done it wrongly, which is a bit unfair, I think, personally, because as you've said, I don't necessarily think a good practitioner needs to have worked in that sport. So I suppose I get a bit more ingratiated with athletes a bit quicker, just purely because of my previous background, whereas it might take another practitioner a little bit more time. But as with every sport, it can be insular, it can be cultural. Bearing in mind, I've also had people particularly coaches who don't trust you whether you've been involved in it or not and you still have to go through those processes of working with them to I suppose to highlight how you can help their athletes but no it's certainly in in the context of making weight it helps to have had a former background. Sure Joe have you had the same experience? So mine would be different and as Carl suggests probably had to earn the respect a little bit more in the early phase and the thing that made a big difference is spending time in the gym as much as possible. When I first started working on the South Coast, I'd spend a whole day in the gym, just watching training sessions, interacting with fighters, interacting with coaches. Some of the work I did would be nutrition related, other it would be other personal stuff. And I would just park up in the gym and spend the entire day there. And that gave me a decent grounding in understanding the environment of a combat sport gym and understanding the fighters and athletes themselves. And I think that step is a difficult one to overcome but probably the most important because after that point, 
you learn the respect and your advice will be heeded a bit more than it would do without that for sure. You make a great point there, Joe, and that's one that I have definitely observed in my own practice and I've seen in many other people's practices, indeed on this podcast, many people have mentioned this, that something they found valuable or invaluable even was, you know, when you're working with an athlete or researcher or being a practitioner, to truly understand that athlete, you know, goes beyond just understanding their sport, understanding the individual, it could be anything from environmental to cultural issues, socioeconomic issues, there's a lot to it, isn't there? Particularly with fighting sports, you know, I just mentioned the socioeconomical thing. Well, that is a factor. You know, they don't necessarily have the money or the background or even the understanding of what, I guess, people that have lived luckier lives, accessibility to food, the idea of sitting down and eating, you know, properly prepared cooked food. It's a very interesting thing, which all goes into influencing what our, what our athletes do and don't do and why they're doing what they're doing and what we have to try and I don't want to use the word fight against, but it seems almost relevant in the context of this conversation, makes for a pretty fascinating area of work. And I guess it would help here, I think, if we get into this idea of a combat athlete and one of the, it's not just a case of them punching or receiving punches or kicks or whatever form of combat sport we're particularly focused on. There's a lot to that, Carl. Maybe you could, by way of introducing or defining this topic of making weight, what's weight got to do with it? You know, yes, we want to lose weight or look good in the ring or whatever, but why making weight? What does that term actually mean and why is it important? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think one of the best papers that I tend to like to use as a definition for this is the Ackland paper, so the IOC paper from 2012, which basically states that you have obviously different types of events who are involved in the business of making weight. So making weight is a reduction in body mass and that can aid in terms of performance benefits in relation to events that require propulsion. So gravitational sports, sports that have, a, I suppose, an aesthetic judgment. And then obviously more so mine, mine and Joe's remit, weight categorized sports where athletes are defined by specific weight categories or, you know, they're defined by body mass in order to make the competition fairer. On that basis, Lawrence, I always say when you look at sport these days, and you'll be able to comment from your experience, and I know speaking, I'm very fortunate working with Graham Close and James Morton. I don't particularly know many sports who aren't in the business of making weight these days in some shape or other. But I suppose the more nuanced and interesting side of this is the weight categorized sports because it is a direct mediator of their performance outcome. And it stems from the whole idea, and I know Joe will expand on this, the lower category you get to in terms of either being bigger than your opponent in terms of overall size or having longer levers, so longer limbs, gives you an actual advantage in terms of performing within that event. Even though, as I'm sure Joe will testify, there's no tangible scientific evidence to highlight that that is actually the case. In fact, there's some evidence highlighting that's the contrary, but it culturally stems from the fact that if you're able to get to a lower category, you're going to be a better athlete, you're going to be able to perform. And then there's also the flip side, which I'm sure Joe's probably actually better placed than me, of the fact that certain sports are regulated by the division in categories or the amount of categories. So actually, the, some athletes don't have a choice. Using me as an example, when I used to compete in Taekwondo at the Olympic events, 
the weight categories were 58, 68, 80, and plus 80 kilograms. So as an average weight of 67, 68 kilograms, my only real choice was to go to 58. So it wasn't necessarily necessitated by a, well, it was necessitated by a desire to perform, but if I'd have had a choice not to do that, then I certainly wouldn't have engaged in it. Yeah. And Joe, I'm going to bring this over to you in a second because we talk in nutrition or sports nutrition or performance nutrition, we do talk a lot about weight, weight loss, weight reduction, and for the more recreational individuals, even if it very much has the health implications, it's still got very much an aesthetic component to it. Whereas when we're talking about combat athletes, there is certainly an aesthetic component, but that's more of a side effect of everything else that goes before it. And I guess the way I like to think of this, which is best, I guess, summed up by the word functional, it's not about being aesthetic or even healthy necessarily, although we will come back to that concept, but it's very much about the functionality, how functional that athlete is. And Joe, from a functional perspective, we're not just talking about making weight in an athlete. We're talking specifically about a combat sport or a combat athlete. What does that actually mean? Just so we're all totally clear. It's a good question. And it's going to mean something different for each individual fighter. So if you've got a combat sport fighter who predominates as a striking athlete, they might well want to be lighter and more agile. Whereas if you have a mixed martial artist or a wrestler and they're a grappler, they might want to be heavier so they can use that mass and size against their opponent. And so what that process of weight loss looks like could be very different. And after the weigh-in, as you know, there'll be a rehydration period. Some fighters might gain a little bit more. Some fighters might gain a little bit less. And that can be linked into the tactics, but also their own strengths as a fighter as well. I'm not sure if this directly answers your question, but there's a nice quote that a fighter said to me once. I'll give him a name check. It's Chris Mia. And he said that there's something to be said for being in the body that you compete in. So fighters actually spending some time training at the weight they're likely to be on the mat or on the cage. Thinking less of combat sport as a battle of sort of brute strength or force and more about the rhythm of how you control your center of mass, which I think is quite nice. So I've used that to, to try and get fighters on side a little bit when we're talking about how to plan that journey. But the process is going to be so different from sport to sport, but also within a sport from fighter to fighter, depending on how they see that they can win the competition or win the bout. It adds an immense amount of complexity, of course. You know, I mean, I have worked a bit in this area, but when I look at the different weight categories, you've got different titles for different weight classes and different sports. And indeed, you've got actual different weight ranges that can be applied to those different weight classes and titles. And then we've also got differences between professional and amateur and male and female. And we'll come to some of that because I think that's relevant. But if we were to differentiate sort of combat in a more natural environment where people couldn't care less about how much you weight, these are two adversaries who meet each other in a state of conflict of some form and they get down to it and there's a victor and there's a loser or somebody's going to leg it, you know, because they realize they don't like the size. The guy's huge or feels confident because that person's small. But here we actually have something whereby an athlete's going to turn up and Carl, I'll have you explain how this works in a second, but they train for ages and then they turn up at this event and they either are or are not the right weight. And if they aren't the right weight, well, they can be told to go home again. 
or worse, they might not make it because their efforts to make weight kills them off before they even got punched. So I think that's what makes this so interesting. And of course, we've then got the difference between what, if you like, the folklore, what people have done for centuries and has been influenced by just doing it, practice, if you like, and then the influence of former athletes and coaches and so on. And then we've got you guys or us guys, scientists, and we're sticking our fingers in on it and going, well, hang on, actually, what a lot of you guys have been doing isn't necessarily right. You need to do it this way because of the evidence that we've now discovered, which is what we're going to delve into today. But Carl, again, I don't know if everyone truly appreciates how complicated this concept of why they need to make weight. What's that all about? I think you give a good overview there, really. But um, it's a complicated issue in the sense that, as Joe has alluded to, there's certain reasons why a fighter wants to make a specific weight category that can be mediated by a desire to be more competitive. Or as we said before, some of the research that I've done, which is unpublished at the moment, is, is highlighted that you've kind of been forced is probably the wrong word, but directed into needing to do it, as you said before, based on number of categories or division in categories and things like that. And basically, you're looking at a reduction in body mass through both chronic and acute means. That's obviously dependent on time frame. Again, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but certain events have different, I suppose, inverted commas, camps. Some professional MMA guys might get as short as three to four weeks, whereas you look at classically in pro boxing, theirs will be as long as 12 weeks. And you're basically trying to reduce body mass through chronic means, i.e. manipulation of body tissues, predominantly if you can, body fats, if that's available, and or maybe lean tissues to, to a certain degree. And then you have probably the most, I'd say interesting, but also probably the most nerve-wracking, dangerous part, which is the acute part where you're trying to artificially manipulate that body mass as well in order to lower it through, I suppose, means that we understand from a scientific perspective, from a point of view of liberating total body water, whether that be reduction in muscle glycogen content, which is bound to water, or gut content, which is bound to interstitial fluids and things like this. And then there's obviously trying to reduce those compartments of total body water through means of dehydration. And yeah, I suppose going to your earlier point, it's an interesting process. It's one that probably, as far as I'm concerned, is on par with any nutritional intervention that needs an nth degree understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And at the end of the day, as you mentioned earlier, Lauren, if it's done incorrectly, it can kill someone. So uh, quite an interesting process to be involved in. So Joe, I mentioned earlier, you know, there's tradition and culture, which is been there for a long, long time. And we all grown up watching things like Rocky movies and so on. And you see, it's all about the tradition and the culture and why they do what they do. And then the new kid on the block is science. And you guys are both well into performing the science and trying to understand this from that different perspective where you've got to tease out the good and the bad, if you like, and the ugly that there is from this tradition and culture. And I remember a lecture that James gave, James Morton gave us on our program. This is years ago now. And he was talking about boxers making weight. And I think part of the conversational context was about bro science, actually, how we got to be careful with how we position some of the things that people have been doing for years and are still winning medals and 
maybe we're thinking there's a problem with that with our very limited understanding of where science is now but yesterday's bro science might be tomorrow's highly respected science we've just got to be careful there where are we in that spectrum of tradition culture and science joe what i'm trying to say here is just how new is the science relative to all this tradition and culture and as we're looking at that or as you're looking at that as scientists and as people like myself as practitioners are looking at that how should we position all of this at this point you think yeah it's another good point i think it's important that the science isn't at all in opposition to tradition these aren't two separate things these are sides of the same coin and science is trying to validate aspects of the tradition that people have found to be successful or not if you were to enter a gym and say i'm a sports nutritionist here's what our papers say this is what i'm going to do you're probably going to struggle a little bit to be honest we know that when it comes to reducing body fat maintaining muscle mass like kind of chronic body composition strategies we know there are certain principles you can apply and it's about conveying that to the athlete, but also understanding what do they currently do. So if you come to a fighter, say, and they say, well, I normally follow a ketogenic diet throughout my whole fight camp. You could explain how that might be affecting some of the adaptations to training, but also that when they get to the fight week, they're leaving less tools in the toolbox. And then we're going to make that final five or seven days a lot harder as well. Now, if that athlete chooses to continue with what they normally do, that's no problem at all. From my perspective, we just structure it so it can be as effective as possible within those constraints over time and once you've done a few fight camps you tend to find that people are more willing to change and if they see someone else having success with a different approach that's normally a good buy-in so if you've got some senior fighters who can act as role models the message coming from them can help shift those traditions a little bit more towards the science where we want them but you don't get rid of all the traditions as and Carl can probably add a couple more to these. I've had fighters who do things that I expect to be completely ineffective, but if there's no detriment and they're happier keeping that in, fine by me, I'd rather have someone who's happy and is doing the main things properly. In terms of specific strategies, I know, Carl, feel free to jump in and add some, but something that I don't know if it's a bit of bro science or definitely a myth that propagates among some fighters that during the rehydration period, they'll slam a load of creatine. So after the weigh-in, before the sport, they might have 10 hours, they might have 32 hours, depending on the weigh-in structure. They'll take loads and loads of creatine and the idea that that's going to draw water into the muscle and rehydrate the muscle. I personally don't think that's having any effect acutely, but if that's what something you do, fantastic, keep on doing it. Yeah. Joe's highlighted some really good stuff there. Probably going back to the original question to a point, it's a little bit like everything in life, Lauren, that there is a lot of really, it's improving. I have to admit being involved in this, probably similar to Joe over the past decade, as fighters are coming through now, I think they're probably a little bit more informed, rightly or wrongly. There's a lot more access to social media and things like that. Again, that can have its pros and cons because sometimes they're following things that are just, that are completely bro science that probably weren't propagated by the tradition, which may have been correct, but Research-wise, I think a lot of this stuff is in its absolute infancy. There's a hell of a lot to do. And again, like everything in life, as you know, we're, I suppose, shackled by who cares enough to really fund the research to examine this stuff. We're, we're fortunate now that you're getting institutions like the UFC Performance Institute and things who are trying to look into this and make things a lot more professional. But there are some things that are established that work. And as Joe said, might work that are not necessarily backed by evidence, but you'd be happy as long as it's not causing a detriment. 
But then there are other factors as well that I tend to see where, as you've said, it's culturally driven and led. You know, a fighter who becomes a coach, this is what I did, so that's what you're going to do. So it's a lot like everything in sports. It's perpetuated by previous practice. So I suppose our job is just trying to permeate into that and make sure that we give examples of, okay, well, that might work and it's resulted in success. But, you know, you could do this. The process is probably a lot better and will still result in the same success. That's kind of the mitigating factor sometimes. But no, from a research and practice perspective, I think everyone who me and Joe speak to, you know, top level practitioners, researchers, anybody who's worth the salt will say that this is in its absolute infancy. And I don't think a single person in the world can call themselves an expert in this space. Yeah, that's a great point that you make. And that's why I do try and mention on this podcast one of the recurring themes is about understanding the limits of your knowledge if you don't know and you're trying to fix something you don't really know chances are you might break something you know but also you need to know more than just nutrition for example you're going to need to have an understanding of the physical demands of that athlete and by that I don't mean just the training but also the impact of the various strategies that they take to result in achieving that weight that target that we'll come back to because this is an area that I want to explore in more detail with you guys. But if we just quickly, Carl, focus on what I said about for a combat athlete, their weight has a relevance to their functionality as an effective combat athlete. Could you just explore that for us in a bit more detail? You know, it's not just weight specifically, because obviously that's a term that covers a number of factors. What are those those factors that are relevant to a combat athlete and those which we are going to impact through nutrition and training, which we'll explore in this conversation, obviously. Yeah, so Joe mentioned it earlier on. I think he made a great point that in getting down to a specific weight category, you're generally trying to do that to be more competitive. Joe made a great point that it does tend to be discipline or you know sports-specific in the sense that grappling sports, if you are a lot larger than your opponent, just think of basic force force times velocity equals power you know you have a lot more mass to be able to generate those movements you're going to be more competitive um, adding to the to any technical tactical prowess for striking combat athletes and again this is very very individual it's based on the fact that those longer levers if i'm a lot taller a lot leaner able to get down to a weight category and then i have longer levers and you know my reach is able to strike you before yours is able to strike me it's just all about i suppose increasing that percentage and that likelihood of success from a physical capacity added onto the technical capacity what we don't really know from this is what kind of interplay between the technical and the physical i suppose really perpetuates success because as we know there's plenty of guys in combat sports who are the smaller guy who've had amazing success just based on the fact that they're an outstandingly technical fighter. But that's the aim. That's why a lot of these guys do this. They're trying to increase the success. In terms of how they do it, like you were saying, culturally and traditionally, a lot of this has come down from they're doing it in mind to just get the number on the scales. They're not necessarily considering how they're getting that number on the scales. And the one that fascinates me a lot of the time, working with fighters sometimes, Lauren, I'm sure Joe can testify to this, making weight sometimes is almost a bigger objective than, than the actual fight itself. You often hear with some of them, oh, I've made weight, you know, now's the easy part, the fight. And you're like, that's a very bizarre way to look at this. We think of classical sport, nutrition, performance, nutrition. The idea, you know, the focus for us isn't necessarily the weight, it's getting you to the fighters as prepared as you possibly can be. 
which is what some of the most successful practitioners and researchers do. But yeah, a lot of these guys culturally will just focus on getting to that weight. I've been guilty of this in the past. My my coach was my nutritionist and my mum was my personal chef. You know, so I could tell you about some of the stuff I did in the past prior to having any nutritional help. I look at it now and shudder. I mean, I do remember one time when I was 15, my expert nutritionist in my coach, I think I had to lose six kilos in a week. And he put me on a diet of one bowl of carrot and turnip a day with some OXO sprinkled on top. So as you can see from that diet, very well periodized with plenty of protein and, you know, fuel for the work required plan. It was just... (laughs) just abysmal and thankfully I actually failed the weight by 0.1 of a kilo because I was in no fit state to compete whatsoever and bizarrely psychologically as well I hadn't even considered the context of the fight I think the only focus was making weight you know had I had made the weight I probably would have gone oh oh yeah now I have to fight so yeah yeah, it's a strange one I understand the desire and the needs you know Joe will testify to this as well there isn't any solid scientific evidence but you know from our own practice generally it does help to be bigger. So I understand why they want to do it. I just don't think a lot of them understand how to do it with the context of actually performing after they've, they've made weight. Okay, so there's a, a hornet's nest of issues or a can of worms that we're about to open because, I mean, for a start, I think, I remember one fighter I was working with who was explaining to me that, you know, his anxiety, his worries, his concerns were that his greatest adversary was not who he was going to fight. It was that number on the scale and himself in trying to get there. And you witness torture going for an amazing amount of time. And like you say also, and this is what we will tease out in this conversation today, this discussion, is the speed at which they achieve that number and the strategies or the methods that they use to get there without necessarily a consideration for the quality of what that weight is or, I guess, the deleterious effects that that could have, not just on their performance, but indeed on their health or their survival even, as you mentioned before, but also just from a basic sort of nutritional perspective. It's also this focus that people get into in when they think about sports nutrition, they start going back to things like, calories and macros and they don't talk about food and what food actually does for a person which yes feeds them but it nourishes them in many other ways and for somebody who embarks on something that is so extreme where they make such great sacrifices food becomes the enemy and therein lies some psychological issues and you see this in physique sports of course where They don't just achieve that weight, that number, or that look. They also achieve an eating disorder and or some other condition that we've talked about on this podcast and in other episodes like relative energy deficiency in sport or, you know, what is more recently being termed for male combat athletes, for example, is the male athlete triad. You know, we're familiar with the female athlete triad, but what about the male one? It's all very fascinating and very relevant to this conversation. But Joe, let's just, because we're sort of, coming at this from different angles, I want to just bring this back to this concept of approaching making weight. What are the ways in which people approach making weight? And I guess starting with, I guess, the most common ones, you know, nine times out of 10, what are you expecting to hear from an athlete that you're working with or studying in how they try and achieve weight? And maybe, you know, some of the other areas, if they're particularly novel that you might want to mention. 
Yeah, sure. I think the athletes who haven't had any sports nutrition support, the things that happen nine times out of 10 is they'll be trying to lose the weight over far too short a time period. There'll be no day by day or week by week plan of how they're going to do that. Normally, they'll just go to a clean eating or like a bro science clean eating approach and hope that that will work, certainly in the early phases. And there's no plan for the actual fight week itself. Sometimes there's a plan for the acute dehydration, but there's no plan on percentage of body mass they're going to reduce. There's just a plan that they know they're going to use a certain method and they'll use it until it works. And then again, nine times out of 10, there's no clear structure for what happens after the weigh-in. So you've got four main issues there. You've got the time is too short. There's no structure and plan for the gradual weight loss period. There's no structure of the amounts of body mass to manipulate in the acute weight loss period and then there's no plan in place for the rehydration and they're kind of in making weight your four main parts so this will vary depending on the combat sport as Carl mentioned if it's sort of amateur boxing they'll compete quite regularly sort of weekly or fortnightly but if it's more mixed martial arts professional boxing you'll have longer breaks in between so straight away you need a longer fight camp if possible if you can get up to sort of a 10-week fight camp, then that's far better. And it means you can gradually lose body mass over that nine-week period. And that might be around a percent or a percent and a half per week, depending on the starting period. But all of this comes back to, not to go too far forward, as a sports nutritionist, your initial risk assessment. So what's this person's competition weight? What's their current body composition? Can they actually make that weight through losing body fat alone? Or what's the dehydration buffer at the end of the fight camp going to look like and you need to start piecing together some of these different parts and then also the fighter themselves so what's their competitive level are they experienced is this a high level fight by the time you've drawn in some of those strands it might be well actually this person doesn't need to lose an awful lot of weight or this person needs to lose far more than what they actually can so it's not going to be safe or what's normally the case somewhere in the middle okay we can get this person to their competition weight. We can do it in the safest way possible. We can try and maximize performance, but it's going to take quite a lot of mass to shift and then put back on, which is normally where the guys will fall into. So look, there's going to be a limit to how much of the, I guess, the physiology, the science that we can get into in this sort of hour, hour and a half. And there's all sorts of resources I'm going to include with the podcast notes, including papers you've both published and contributed to including actually a uh, one paper that one could argue is a bit old which is your making weight in combat sports that was in one of the nsca journals that i think joe and i probably both read back in the day but of course carl that's also i was joking that's 10 years ago and the uh, pictures of you were when you were still a young lad <laughs> doing your msc and uh, and all that stuff well i had a lot less weight than i think james and graham had a lot more here that we best skip past that particular <laughs> risk factor there. Where I wanted to just quickly focus on, because they can read a lot of this background stuff in those papers, you cover it all. You talk about risk analysis, Joe. There's a needs analysis that we're thinking about. What is it that this combat athlete needs? I've mentioned, I've used the term, they've got to be functional. There's a whole point to why they step in the ring. Yes, they've got to achieve a weight, but they've also got to achieve a result. Carl, what's necessary to achieve that result? Because it's not just about, say, brute force or whatever. There's a variety of factors that can influence that. Just give us a quick idea what those considerations would be. Yeah, I think Joe's teed that up perfectly there. 
So what we tend to do, are probably using the make and wait paper. Lawrence has a little bit of context for this is, as Joe said, like anything in sports nutrition, I think you'd want to perform some kind of objective assessment to understand whether the individual has the capacity to make the weight that they want to achieve. In the first instance, you want to do that through at least some sort of body composition assessment. I suppose in an ideal world, you would want to use an assessment that would give you as wide a body compartmental view as you possibly could. So some assessments of those different tissues in the sense of you know, bone mass, fat-free mass or lean mass, however you want to categorize it, fat mass. And then additionally, this isn't included in that original paper, but is very important now, some assessments of total body water, because as Joe mentioned earlier on, that's very important for understanding in the acute phases and how you can manipulate that. What we tend to do, we're very lucky in John Moores, and I know you've had discussions about this in previous podcasts, but we have both DEXA and medical grade BIA, so bioelectrical impedance. And we'll do an assessment on both of those units and I'm sure everybody is aware of the level of standardization that has to go into that in order to make that as effective as possible. But we'll assess that. And then what we basically do is we'll calculate a minimum body fat percentage at the target weight that the individual's trying to get to. That then allows you to understand how much fat mass they're able to lose in the context of the total mass that they need to lose. And that then gives you an idea of, okay, well, actually, you're already quite lean. You want to lose 10 kilos, so you know 12% plus of your mass, but you're already quite lean. You've only got two kilos to lose. That means we're going to have to lose way and above 10% of your overall mass or eight kilos in, in lean tissues and dehydration. It's not feasible. It's not ethical. It's not safe. It's not feasible. So in that instance, that would probably be a no. Then for me, there's also kind of, Joe will probably agree with this, maybe situations, as he mentioned earlier on, where you're probably looking at it going, well, you know, if it's for a major event or it's going to have a great burden on the fighter's career where you might potentially push the boundaries, you know, they're able to lose a bit more fat mass, but, you know, you're going to the upper end of what you'd be less comfortable with in the acute factors. And then to be fair, there's the easier cases where you assess that, you look at the minimum body fat and they've actually got quite a decent level of body fat to manipulate in a chronic time period. And I wouldn't necessarily say that's easy, but those are the ones that you can have a bit more of a relaxed, nuanced approach to making weight. So that's the first approach. If you establish that they're actually able to make that target weight, the next thing you want to do is try and decide what level of energetic intake you're going to try and utilize to achieve that. Now, within that paper, and we still kind of stick to this at the moment, this was, again, showing how old I am now, Lauren, but this was, I suppose, pre-energy availability craze. Black but and white days. The black and white days, yeah. We've always advised that you want to at least target a minimum energetic intake of the athlete's RMR, predominantly being, as you guys both know, those metabolic functions that are utilized by RMR are really key to, I suppose, offset any of the effects that you get from a low energy availability state, which leads to things like athlete triad and, and red S and things like that. And I know you'll put this up. We've kind of tested that hypothesis in a recent case study, which was in MedSci, showing that being on an energy intake of RMR, even though you're in low energy availability, seems to sustain a lot of factors in and around the health and performance consequences of REDS. It seems to offset those. It's when you go below RMR that you really see some effects. But again, an N of one case study and a lot more work to be done in that space. But yet, so you want to base the diet in and around rest and metabolic rate. And we tend to take an approach of one gram per kilo of fat two grams per kilo of protein, 
and three grams per kilo of carbohydrates. That's definitely not a set rule. Those are kind of general targets that we go for because as we know, we do need dietary fat to protect a whole range of metabolic functions. You know, so as Joe said before, a lot of these fighters will try and go zero fat or, you know, the opposite end, they'll go ketogenic, high fat. It's, it's all about that balance. That level of protein from all the research that we're all aware of, and I know you've had this on former podcast, Lawrence, is appropriate to either maintain and protect or even in some instances gradually increase lean mass. And then that level of carbohydrate, which is periodized. So we follow the fuel for the weight required model, which is periodized in and around training is enough to sustain the level of intensity and activity that they need. And then finally added on to that, we also do some kind of substrate utilization and cardiovascular assessment where, so what we've got is we've got the means, as Joe said, to objectively quantify how they're going to make the weight, the dietary modulation that we're going to periodize and put in place in order to make the weight. And then we also assess, say, like substrate utilization and cardiovascular capacity on the basis of looking at, okay, what different types of training zones can we create individually for you that will help support those goals? Because as, as you both know, it's energy in versus energy out and how we're able to do that. So some of the things we advise in that paper and they're open for debate and contention is faster training. Me and James are great believers in this. Graham Close isn't. But we advise that once you're able to establish a subs, if you think of Asker Eugendrup's classic fat max zone, and you do that in a fasted state. So, you know, you've got energy modulation versus trainer modulation. You're deliberately targeting fat. Whereas maybe in the middle of the afternoon when they're doing a high intensity sports specific session, you want to go higher carbohydrates in order to support that. They're on when they're doing S&C, you want to make sure they've got adequate protein in and around that. So rightly or wrongly, that's kind of the approach that we take. And I wouldn't debate with anybody around whether that's correct or not, because there's a lot of different ways to approach this. But the first two for me are definitely key. Objective information to establish the capacity to make weight and then the diet that you're going to put in place to do it. Now. Don't know if you've got anything to add on that, Joe. Yeah, I was just going to jump in actually on the when you mentioned the fasted training. I think this is a nice combination of where the science can meet the practice and that we maybe don't have conclusive evidence that it's going to promote superior adaptation but it might do but then when you go into practice a lot of these athletes are training their morning session particularly the guys I worked with will train at 6am so faster training becomes a logical approach because it's normally a lower intensity yeah Yeah, it's a lower intensity session and they're quite happy not to get up and eat and train on a full stomach you're hypocaloric so you have to remove calories from somewhere it's just a really easy strategy to follow and i would couple that with sleep low as well so the evening meal after the evening training session quite often unless a fighter has an objection to it and really wants it the other way then fine but after the evening training session that would also be a carbohydrate free or a very low carbohydrate meal if there is a benefit to sleep low, train low in the morning, perfect. We're getting that as well. But if not, it's just a really easy way to pull some of the weight out of the diet. That's a brilliant way of looking at it because they're already training fasted predominantly anyway. So it's not a hard sell. You're just going to the other side, just to add a bit of context to this. I think the hardest part, Joe, is actually convincing them to eat that amount of food because they've starved themselves up to this point. You come in this cowboy and you say right you're going to eat you know 1800 calories on a diet now split into whether that be three larger four five six meals and a lot of them just panic and go i I can't eat that level of food so some things as joe said from a scientific perspective the faster training is something they're already doing scientifically when you think of the 
you know, the adaptations that we can get from that and supporting the actual chronic body mass loss is brilliant. The other side, when you say to them, but I want you to eat carbohydrates, you know, I want you to eat a decent meal prior to a hard session. They look at you like you're some kind of lunatic. And again, just using that case study that we published in MSSE as an example, we talk a little bit about the, because we measured the psychology of the athlete of that going through. And I remember with them, because we employed this similar methodology, they were just like, this is insane. I can't eat this much food and lose body mass. It's not possible. And Joe will probably testify to this, that almost religious experience they get when they realize that the losing weight and eating food is like, it's a brilliant feeling because they come to you and go, oh, this is life changing. It's amazing. I've got so much energy and I'm losing weight. So that's kind of a nice side of things as well. Yeah, and it's so rare prior to any support. It's quite unusual for the fighters to be really genuinely fully fueled for a training session. So by removing some of those carbohydrates from the areas in which they might not have as much benefit, you can have a really high carbohydrate meal a couple of hours before a hard sparring session. And they're so happy with the results they get from training. Mentally, it's concentrate a little bit better, the fuel to last the whole session. So you're taking advantage of in the sessions that really need the fuel, you've got it there to use. You know, I think this is fantastic discussions. I'm enjoying this as I'm sure the listeners are. And you illustrate just how blunt an instrument that weight, that number on that scale is, and the implications that has for everyone's decision making. And it is true. There has to be a practical consideration to this as well. There's a lot of things these people do for their training, which in many cases is considerable amounts of training, but also there's very much a personal preference. And you use Graham and James there as an example. And I know that James is perfectly happy to train fasted and Graham's extremely grumpy if he hasn't had breakfast. So (laughs) there lies a, a perfect example. But going back to that blunt instrument, which is the weight on the scale and or the target of that weight they have to achieve, brings us back to this issue of time, time and timing. And Joe, I know you've done some work in this area. We'll come back to this concept of rapid weight loss and rapid weight gain, but there is a time span in which these targets are achieved and there's a magnitude of effect there. There's quite a lot involved in that process, which is believed, rightly or wrongly, to be an advantage where, yes, they might lose a certain amount of weight, usually in a very short period of time, weight, not body composition, but weight, and then they will regain that weight rapidly. What have you discovered about the implications of that in terms of how quickly those things are achieved? And so we're talking just the rapid weight loss phase. Well, I mean, it's all going to be relevant. Feel free to comment on where you feel. Yeah, sure. So if we work back from the competition day, let's say that the event is going to take place on a Saturday. The weigh-in is either going to be on a Saturday morning or Friday beforehand, either the afternoon or the evening. You're really looking at the Sunday before that Saturday as the body composition that they have or they wake up with on that Saturday or Sunday on the week before, that's probably what they're going to enter the competition as the following week. So you're coming in there with sort of five or six days of which you're going to reduce weight primarily through glycogen, through body water, and from any water bound to food waste in the intestines as well. Carl mentioned about doing your assessment and and body composition assessment and the gradual dieting. I think if you're mapping out your plan, that week before the fight is the end of your gradual dieting phase. So that's where you need to 
factor in what the minimal body fat is and the weight they can achieve and work backwards in the weeks from that. And once we're into that final week, it's some of the uh, the more, um, you've got to be clever with the approaches. One thing, before we talk about the methods, one thing I will say is that if a fighter comes into that final week and they're not well nourished, so let's say they've already been on a low carbohydrate diet or they have already eating below their RMR, it's going to make those final few days an awful lot tougher because you don't have tools to play with that you can use. Um, Carl's mentioned a few of these already. So things like low fiber, low carbohydrate, and maybe some dehydration methods in those final few days. And Reed Reels published a, a couple of nice studies on this where he, where he looks at what could safely be manipulated in those final few days. And he's put a range of 5 to 8% in terms of what the acute weight loss or what we call rapid weight loss could be in that period. There was a case study I published last year that wasn't too technical. It was more of like a practical guide to making weight in a fighter with a fighter I worked with the year before. And the rapid weight loss in that phase was 7.4%. And that's odd percents made up from each of the categories. So a couple of percent from glycogen depletion, maybe a percent from fiber restriction and a loss of food waste. A percent maybe from using something like water loading and then a couple of percent from passive dehydration. But the more different avenues you have to take odd percents off of that weight in the final week, a lawful lot safer it's going to be. If you get to the Saturday or Sunday and you think, right, I've got 10% to lose. I'm already glycogen depleted. I'm already hungry. I've been training hard. You're not going to do 10% through de- Well, you can attempt to do 10% through dehydration alone, but now we're getting into the high risk unsafe health problem and worse areas. Is there anything you'd add on that? Well, for I, well, I want, Sorry. Yeah. No, no, that you did. That's exactly where I was going. Cause now I want to discuss the difference between acute and chronic approaches to this. And this brings me to you, Carl, over the course of this podcast, which is a number of years old now, going back six plus years, I think five, six years, I can't remember how long I've been doing this, but, Pretty much the first ever podcast was with James Morton, as it happens. And even back then, he was talking about the consequences of chronic energy deficiency states and the impact that he presumed back then, because this predates what we now know about relative energy deficiency. And back then, he, you know, he had a lot of experience working with boxers and so on. But if we fast forward it to where we are now, and I know, Carl, you've done research in this and a number of episodes back, I had Jose Aretta on here, one of your colleagues who's very much a world-renowned expert in this concept. What is this, I guess, long-term chronic consequence of, you know, this blunt instrument of I've got to lose weight and I've got quite a lot of weight to lose in some cases and I'm just going to come at this hard and do this so I can lose as much weight as possible. What are the implications of that from your own perspective? Yeah, I'll probably break it down into to three phases of it's okay, Lauren. Mm. I spoke about the chronic phase and the effect of that, touching a little bit on what Joe said around the acute. And then the one that I'm getting quite interested in now is the post-events as well, so the kind of effect of that. So the big thing, and Joe will probably agree, is and given the general timescales that you get with a lot of these fighters, even if it's as long as 12 weeks, you mentioned earlier on aesthetic, you know, athletes like bodybuilders or physique athletes, we're not doing this over six months. It's not a really transient, gradual approach, you know, day by day. You know, you can regard it as short or long. It depends on your perspective, I suppose, but it's not a large time frame. So these guys have to be in a low energy availability state 
in order to achieve the weight. I think if you followed the classical guidelines of between 30 to 45 kilocalories per kilogram of fat free mass, they just wouldn't gradually lose that weight in time. Also bearing in mind that a lot of research that we would probably like to conduct in this area, ethically, you're just never going to get the status to be able to do that. So for my mind, there's never been a study that's, that's actually looked at that, but a lot of the time you need to be in low energy availability. From my own practice and then from that paper we recently published again, we make this explicit. It's only an N of one case study, so it's, it's got to be approached with caution. We don't necessarily see the deleterious effects of male athlete triad or reds. They seem to be quite, males seem to be quite robust to that. And as long as it, as Joe's mentioned, is planned, periodized, you know, it's done in the context of trying to make weight within day and between day with a consistent thought out strategy, they seem to do okay. Adding on to that, we're quite fortunate at the moment that literally next week I'll be concluding a two-year long case study with the same design, but in a female athlete who's in the UFC, so repetitive camp. So again, you're looking at an individual who's in low energy availability for 50% of the, of the whole time. And again, individualized, but very robust. We haven't seen any menstrual cycle effects. We haven't seen any kind of effects on performance or classic responses with red S. And I know this is something that Nancy Williams and, and Mary Jane D'Souza out at Penn State are kind of saying it's when you look at the effects of a model like triad or reds, energy availability is a factor. It's a lot wider than that. It's considered in the context of everything. So the chronic elements for me, I think when it's planned and when it's well designed, the effects are quite minimal. And, you know, it can be constructed in a way and I suppose modulated in a way where there's not really that many effects. In the acute, as Joe said, it's really about a certain level of objectivity. And there's a lot of strategies that we can follow, as Joe's mentioned, to get down there. What I do find fascinating is me and Joe can tell you from our own practice, we know this stuff works. But if you look at the research and literature around, say, gut content manipulation, for example, that doesn't come from combat sport research. It comes from medical colonoscopy papers. When we look at things like glycogen manipulation, it's not been done in a combat sport realm. It's your classic Bergstrom papers from back in the 60s where we know if you exercise like this, you get a reduction. So we're not necessarily following any methodology that's being proposed within the area. It's more just classical science. And for me, I think that's definitely the part where you objectively need to measure. I know some of the better guys now, and we do this, and we highlight this in our case study, a reduction as minimal as only 2 to 3% can have pronounced physiological effects on things like cardiac function, cognitive function, specific performance. You need to measure things like heart rate, blood pressure. You need to consider the context of how you're making the weight acutely, whether that be actively, passively, heated environments. Something else that's the key point is when you're doing it with females, understanding if they're not on oral contraception, what phase of the menstrual cycle they're in, given changes in body temperature. And so that one for me, the acute phase is where... A lot of things, even if you've got it planned well, can go very, very, very wrong unless you're objectively monitoring. The big effect for me, the one where we've seen the most effect, and this is probably articulated best in our case study, is the post. Because as with most things in life, they've made weight, they've performed, they don't need you anymore, and they just basically go off and do their own thing. And you see this from literature as far back as the early 1900s, a classic response to energy deficiency is this rebound hyperphagia. So basically an overeating where 
there's a lot of, I suppose, open interpretation to this at the moment, Lauren, about whether it's psychologically regulated or physiologically. Personally, I think it's both where you're trying to recover that energy deficient state by eating as many calories as you can in a shorter period of time. So what a lot of fighters do is they'll rebound often above the baseline weight that they started, and that'll be concomitant with an increase in fat mass. And then as we highlighted in the case study, and this was of huge surprise to even us, there's a total cessation of training. You've got this huge increase in energy intake, which comes with a rebound in weight and fat mass. And that's accompanied by things like in that case study, we highlighted a 450% increase in fasting insulin, which was on the same level as a type 2 diabetic. Within a period of only five days, a huge reduction in the capacity to, for rest and fat oxidation, lipid profiles that were indicative of somebody with poor cardiovascular health. So um, me as a practitioner, researcher, and Joe can add to this, I think we've probably got a nice process now for chronic and acute modulation of body mass for weight making in categorized sports the one that is starting to really interest me and i'm trying to figure out in my mind of how we can not reverse but i suppose deal with this is the post phase is the hyperphagia phase and joe might have some stuff to add on that from his own experience i was going to ask actually i completely agree with the red s stuff in fighters who have a well-structured and periodized nutrition camp over a period of weeks i've not seen any evidence of some of the red s symptoms that you might expect to occur given the conditions but do you think rather than sort of the MMA athletes who we're talking MMA where they compete less frequently, what about some of the amateur boxers who compete or the amateur combat sport athletes who compete more regularly, particularly if they might be around adolescents as well, where they're trying to constantly maintain a similar weight while also going through growth and maturation? Have you seen anything that would link more to the Red S stuff there at all? Yeah, I think, I mean, again, I know Lawrence not focused around Red S, but it's very poignant for what these guys do. Yeah, apologies, Lawrence, for hijacking yeah. there. No, it is. That's why I mentioned, though, in my previous comment, it is. It's a consequence, isn't it? For me, and I think you're right, Joe, and I'm pretty sure Jose touched on this, it's either the magnitude of the energy availability deficit or the low energy availability deficit. You know, so as you see from classic research papers, some of your colleagues, you know, so the Papa Giorgio papers that Craig did um, looking at low energy availability over a couple of days when it's very, very low. And we showed this in our case study, it can happen in a matter of days. What does become more interesting, like you say, is not just the magnitude of deficit, but the duration of deficit. As you say, and some of these guys who are repetitively doing this over time, I agree some of that can be more prevalent, but I also think it's context specific, whereas in my experience all throughout, any combat sport fighter, with even the amateurs, Joe, you know, might do this more periodically because of the osteogenic stimulus of what they do on a day-to-day basis. That offsets any of the effects that you might get on bone metabolism. You know, speaking to Craig about this, he's like, well, granted, you do, you think of the, those classical triads, um, you know, I suppose factors. What One of them is low energy, but, you know, you've got the osteogenic stimulus. You've got the fact that they're probably eating appropriately in and around training. It's probably more from a point of view, I would imagine, of reductions in lean mass that become a bit more, as you know, Joe, probably working with amateurs. Amateur, using boxing as an example, amateur boxers, when you compare the amateur boxer, I suppose, frame or classical archetype athlete versus a professional boxer, they're very lean, they're very thin, they're very wiry, probably because they're in a state of low energy availability more so than the professionals are camp to camp. So, yeah, I agree. There's definitely stuff to be said about that. 
I do know, speaking to some colleagues who work with Olympic athletes as well in the amateur combat sports, things like changes in RMR, so, you know, metabolic factors and blood profiles becomes a little bit more prevalent. But I suppose the flip side of that is, and again, we showed that in that case study, it's very easily rescued as well. So I think, like you said earlier on, Lawrence, it's about objectively recognizing and monitoring these things mm. and then being reactive. So yes, it's more prevalent. I would definitely agree, Joe. And then I'm sure you can comment from your practice, but fortunately enough, it's quickly rescued if you're able to identify that soon enough. You mentioned there objectively monitoring, and that brings me sort of back in another area I just wanted to quickly touch upon is we've got this very blunt instrument that I've referred to as that number on the scale, right? There is this other side of it, which is we talk about weight and we talk about the quality of that weight and the body composition. I've talked about the functional components of that athlete. And of course, we look at different aspects of body composition as being more or less relevant to the requirements of that functionality of that athlete. And of course, that brings us to not specifically sort of an aesthetic requirement, but nonetheless, the aesthetic outcome of a leaner, potentially more menacing looking fighter at the end of that. And for those of us that are working as performance nutritionists or strength conditioning coaches or so on, you can't help but have that as be part of something that you notice or the athlete themselves gets confidence out of looking a certain way. But there's been a number of high profile fights in recent years where the fighter who looks aesthetically less in shape actually came out the victor in that fight. And in fact, speaking of Graham, I think he even made a comment about that on a recent one where are we maybe becoming too obsessed with body composition given all the different factors that result the outcome of the fight? Guys, what do you make of that given it is something that we're researching? You know, you're mentioning we're doing skin folds, Isaac or DEXA. Body composition seems to be highly relevant, but bearing in mind tradition, culture, and then we're using science to inform our practice. Where should we be positioning that in our focus on all this? It's okay, Joe. I'll, I'll probably, going back to what we were talking about earlier on around, a lot of fighters' focus is just on the weigh-in and, you know, they kind of forget the events. One thing I will say for the weigh-in, and Joe, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, there is a little bit of a competitive element around the way in Lauren from the point of view of you've hit the nail on the head, aesthetically looking better than the opponents. I mean, as crazy as this is, something that I used to do because in amateur combat sports, it's obviously not a televised individual weigh-in. You know, people will wait in line, you'll go in, you'll weigh in. I used to turn up to the weigh-in with a half-eaten Mars bar. I'd get my coach to take half a bite out of it. I'd stand there you got all these people dying in a line and I'd be like, yo, what's going on, guys? What's everyone struggling to make weight? Literally smelling this Mars bar from a few inches away. Like, my God, what you know, I would love to eat that. So there is actually, I suppose we haven't made it enough focus on that, Joe. There is an element of the weigh-in where fights can be won and lost, whether that's aesthetic, whether that's tactics. I know our most recent example, using Scott Robinson, I know one of his fighters, Gal Yafai, when, when he fought recently, turned up to the weigh-in and kind of like drank a pint of whatever it was. It was something pink, you know, to get under his opponent's skin. Yeah, and he hasn't like eat a bar of chocolate. Or yeah, or have the, you know, so there, there's an element of that. But then flip side, going to your key points, I take what you mean around the aesthetic. Just to add some interesting context, I've got a paper coming out 
in the next few months where we've done a another qualitative assessment of fighters. So what we did is we did a questionnaire and then I suppose that's the skeleton adding the meat onto the bones. We did some semi-structured interviews. And what I found very interesting, Lauren, was when we actually asked a lot of the fighters about are you bothered about body physique and aesthetics? Because there are some papers, Joe, thinking of the Pettersson papers that assess those guys and body image was quite prevalent. You know, a lot of them are like, yeah, I like to look good. It's important. The guys that we asked said they didn't care about how they looked. It was all about the number on the scales. I don't care about how I look. I just need to make the weight about being, making the weight and being competitive. Well, flip side, I suppose, paradoxically, Lawrence, later on down the conversation, they were like, but I don't like how I look when I make weight, though. And you're like, so you don't care about how you look when you make weight, but it is very important to you how you look. And they were like, yeah, yeah. You want to say to them, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. There's convoluted ideals there. So from my perspective as a practitioner, I'm never driven by aesthetics. I actually think personally, and Joe, you'll be able to comment on this from your experience, that comes from the fighter. I never deliberately focus on what we're doing this for you to have abs. Or for me, the objective numbers that we take is more a case of me understanding how they're making weight. You know, they turn up and they look fantastic. A lot of the time it's because they've been ripping out the sit-ups and doing all sorts of crazy stuff to make themselves look fantastic. But I don't know what your thought process is on that, Joe, but I never really go in for the aesthetics. It's just kind of a byproduct. Yeah, I agree. The body composition assessment shows you what's possible in what time frame. It's never the focus of the plan. As Lawrence, you said as well, there's an awful lot of overlap between nutrition for to improve body composition and nutrition for dieting for our combat sport athletes. So there's going to be a lot of overlap. But the focus of the nutrition plan is never we're trying to reduce fat and maintain muscle at all costs. It's going to look very different from a bodybuilder or a physique athlete's plan. To maybe put a bit of a practical spin on, one of the first things I'll do with a fighter is I get we map out all of their training sessions in a week in a sort of timetable grid. And say, right, what are your most important sessions in this week? And then we're going to maximize the fuel around those and then work back from that with what we've got left, essentially. So it's never, right, show us your training. Okay, here's some nutrition that's going to help you lose weight. The focus is on the performance aspect. But the nutrition you can apply to maximize performance is just constrained by calories is the only difference to a non your typical sort of team sport or endurance athlete, maybe. So, look, we're going to run out of time here and there's so much that we could get into in a minute. We'll finish this off with sort of a basic practical overview about strategies for making weight effectively and safely. But, you know, you mentioned, I think it was Joe, you mentioned about necking some creatine in the drink. And that just wanted me to mention supplements because, of course, we're talking about nutrition primarily. We've not talked so much about training and that's not our focus specifically. But we are talking about energy restriction and getting that right and so on. And maybe we can briefly touch upon the importance of certain macronutrients and so on. But supplements, I mean, how much do you find supplements play a role? Inevitably, they find their way into the fighter's bag or into the locker room or whatever some of which are dubious at best, some of which, of course, are totally harmless. What's your experience on that, guys, starting with you, Joe? Yeah, sure. I do use a fair range of supplements for most fight camps, and I think they can help you recover some performance lost by being hypocaloric is where I see the benefit. So all of these are personal preference, so some fighters will prefer them, some won't, and I don't push them to do anything that they're not happy to do but using caffeine and carbohydrate mouth rinse before a fasted training session in the morning if energy levels are low 
it's not something we'd necessarily do every single training session, but it's there as a tool if they're having a day when the energy levels are a little bit lower. On the competition week, we'll use beetroot supplementation. We'll normally use beta alanine throughout the fight camp as well. Wouldn't use creatine for obvious reasons that the water retention it causes. That's pretty much the limit because that's what we can get batch tested. And of course, whey protein as well and protein bars. But that's what we can get informed sport tested. We trust it or we're pretty confident that it's not got any contaminations in, which is super important for these guys. And the only other thing for traveling athletes, we've had guys compete around the world, is some zinc lozenges. And again, just in the last couple of weeks when calorie intake's low, to try and preserve or maintain immunity as much as possible. There was, I don't know if people saw, I think it might have even been the year before last, quite a prominent fighter in the UFC posted a picture on Instagram where he was looking into a mirror and his table was full of supplements. Mm. There must have been about 50, I'm not exaggerating, probably 50 or 60 bottles on there. And a few weeks later, he tested positive, I believe. So I just think the sheer number and range of supplements is unnecessary, but also the risk-benefit ratio is only there for a few of them, I think. Yeah, that's why I, I always say you can, but should you? That's one of my mantras, you know. But I agree with you when you say there are things you can take and may or may not have a major impact, but as long as it's safe, there's a mindset there because I know with some athletes, they think they should be taking it. And if you take it away from them, that does potentially have a psychological impact. But Carl, when we're talking about the short-term strategies involved to making weight safely, some supplements might play a role in mitigating you know, some of those potential negative effects, which Joe's already mentioned, a few of them like caffeine obviously can have some impact there. But what are your overall thoughts on that? And how Joe's mentioned the ones he might use, do you have any to add? I mean, the only one that I'd probably have to add, and this is something that we've played with, but I am yet still to find an ideal combination that doesn't result in gastrointestinal distress is sodium bicarbonate. We're, we're really lucky that we've got some colleagues up at Edge Hill, just up the road, who are looking at this and are looking at things like encapsulation. But I'm sure Joe can agree when you're working with certain athletes who compete in white uniforms, it's never a good idea to take sodium bicarbonate untested, well, to say untested, but without a tested strategy. But no, I totally agree. I, I would love to really have these athletes on creatine. I think we're all familiar with the additive effects and benefits of creatine, but it just tends to come with that additional excess of total body water. Beta alanine for me is a bit of a mainstay. I encourage as many of the combat sports athletes as I can who I work with to go on that, following some of the guidelines from Professor Craig Sale and, and his group. Don't necessarily play around as much with nitrates. I have in the past. I just tend to find that unless you're actually with the athletes and you're giving it to them or directing them so probably similar to you joe with more of the pro guys might use nitrates but with other guys not necessarily so and then i suppose the king of all the above for me is caffeine it's just absolutely tremendous to rescue some of the performance decrements that you get during the isochloric stages joe said but i think ultimately it's a little bit it depends on the individual i've worked with some guys probably similar to you joe who just don't want to touch a thing they're literally not interested and similar to what you said Lawrence I am very much food first approach so I don't particularly use whey protein unless there's a need to top it up or for convenience in certain times always try and go food first if we can so the opposite side of the coin to guys who don't want to touch anything are those who you pretty much just have to convince to stop taking as much stuff again 
probably you'll have experience of this, Joe. The CBD is just rife in combat sports at the moment, Lauren. I don't know a single person who isn't taking it or isn't inquiring about it or wants to take it. I even saw an Olympic athlete, a very highly decorated combat sport, combat Olympic athlete, who's now sponsored by a CBD company, which I found very surprising considering that they're in a tested event. So, um, I did a you know, podcast with Graham all about this a few episodes back. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it's an absolute minefield. I mm. mean, certain sports you work with, there's no testing regulation. Other ones you work with, it just shocks me. You know, you have to try and convince them to come off it because you're like, look, potential benefits that you're going to get from that far offset and are outweighed by the fact that you're probably going to get a positive test at some point yeah. in your career if you keep taking it but um no i think joe's hit on every tangent there but yeah no i just tend to find two opposite ends of the coin you've got people who listen and will follow a strategy after the time then those who don't want to take anything because they're terrified and then others who they literally come to you and they're asking have you seen this have you seen that have you seen the and you're like oh we're just just yeah. trying to convince them that there's no efficacy in it or it's just a waste of money can be a bit problematic. Yeah. And I like how you say that and frame that. And, you know, I guess one way of summarizing some of that is one does these things because there's a belief that it'll help them do better. It'll help them win the fight. But the reality is the risk might far outweigh the perceived benefits by virtue of being banned and or causing an unwanted effect, which of course reminds us that you know, apart from, as Joe was inferring earlier, that they need to make sure that they're taking products that have been screened for banned substances and so on and batch tested and all that. Also try these things away from competition in practice because you don't know how they might affect you. They might not do anything, which is okay, but they might do something nasty and cause you some weird, unpleasant side effect. Lauren, just, just to jump in on that point, I hope, I hope you don't mind. Please do. From moving the supplements to kind of a practice the practice component, I've been quite persuaded with Brian Saunders has done some work on this on how you deliver the supplement and maximizing the effect of the supplement, whether that's for addition of a placebo. And I think that's something that we can do that certainly not going to have, you mentioned there's about trying to minimize some of the negative effects. And that's what tips my head to, to mention this and that if we frame the supplement in a particular way and our language we use when we describe that to the athlete, we can maximize all of the benefits. And that's a really a free hit to some extent because there's highly unlikely to be a negative side effect to us promoting it in a particular way for performance. So that's, again, some of the language you use with the athletes can be quite powerful there. Yeah, it's fascinating. I did a podcast with Dr. Mayor Ranchordas a few years ago now, quite a few years ago, about placebos and nocebos. And I know that there's more up-to-date stuff on that now, but it is an amazing yeah, and that's why I know firsthand I've I've had this is more football players where you've taken supplements away and they've not liked it. <laughs> they do not like it and it puts them in a very negative mindset and that's not necessarily worth doing if there's no harm in taking it. Look, there's a lot for us that we could continue with and of course that's a reason for people to read your work, your papers, your reviews, your original research and so on. So I'll be attaching all of that to the podcast notes and there'll be a transcript as well to this podcast. People can read about that. But I think people would attack us in the streets if we didn't uh, at least come up with some sort of practical overview to polish this off with. So guys, maybe between you, uh, I'll throw you in the ring, so to speak, and maybe we could just come up with some sort of practical overview of making weight and just some of the 
main areas of consideration that need to be factored in, bearing in mind, of course, there are various kinds of combat sports and and so on. But starting with you, Carl, uh, is there a number of areas you wanted to overview for us, please? Yeah, I think to summarise for me, going back to what we talked about earlier, about that objectivity and assessment is absolutely key. I'll just give you an example. There was a guy who I got approached by who's based over in Spain, a fighter who wanted to get down from a higher weight to a lower weight and was asking, could I support him? And I just said, for the volume of body mass that they needed to lose without having some sort of assessment of their body composition, it's a complete guess. And as it turns out, we were very fortunate to be able to get him a DEXA scan. And it turned out that he didn't have the capacity to make that weight. So now we've got some form of objectivity to make a decision on going one way or the other way. So anyone who you work with in this space who's worth assault will always do that. The the one that worries me, I think, is, and I don't want to get into this too much, but I'm sure Joe will support is some of these weight cut specialists that you get out there now who do three-day courses and are then out in the world operating as a, well, like I said, as the title entails as a specialist within this area. So always, always work from objective data because it can be quite a dangerous process. Chronically, I think, as Joe mentioned, have a plan that needs to be time considered. It needs to be periodized. It needs to be focused in and around within and between day global strategy of how that's planned and modulated around training and in line with any supplements that you're using. In the acute phase, Joe's already mentioned them, but a huge shout out to Dr. Reed Real, who's now head of performance nutrition at the UFCPI. He's done some absolutely tremendous work looking at strategies for the acute phase, but as Joe mentioned, we've probably got a lot of tools in the box there, but that needs to be considered in the context of the time of the event, the amount of time you've got for recovery and things like that. And then also the preference of the athlete, you know, how they'd like to make the weight. And then probably a big factor for me, the one that I think a lot of practitioners even lose focus of is the most key part of this entire process is the recovery between the weigh-in and the event. You can get somebody to the scales in absolutely incredible shape and they can make weight in the best way possible. But if you mess up the bit between coming off the scale and standing in the competitive environment, for a lot of people, that's where the fight can be won and lost. So Mm. make sure that you've considered all other factors around that. And then, yeah, just for those who are working with these athletes, just nobody's an expert. Like say me and Joe have been involved in this for a decade. I've even done a PhD in it. It's like everything in life, Laurent, the more you learn, the less you know. Make sure that you speak to other like-minded colleagues and make sure that you expand your practice to try and look for other facets that you can bring in to improve things. I know between me, Joe, and a lot of other guys out there, we have kind of a small network where we all talk and communicate and bounce ideas off each other. So don't be too insular in your practice. Please certainly communicate. Joe, what would you add to that? I think that's some great information. There's not too much to add. I think we've probably covered a lot about some of the chronic and acute strategies. Maybe just a practical tip based on learning from my own mistakes is I would get fighters to monitor their body mass daily every morning, but I'd only really be concerned with the average weekly change. I think 10 o'clock back nine or 10 years, I used to get a little bit spooked when the weight would change from a Monday to a Tuesday. And then you start making changes to the plan that just aren't necessary, where I think that average weekly weight, the average of the seven days, can give you an awful lot more insight to what's actually happening. It can help calm you down a little bit, help you be composed, because if you're not composed and you're panicking, that's not going to instill the athlete with too much confidence either. But 
I think Carl's kind of the main things, some great points in there. That's a great point. Joe's right. I've done exactly the same thing as a young practitioner. You you see the number on the scales fluctuate and you, you become really nervous and probably a bit more reactive rather than being proactive the way you should be. And then the only final thing to add on top of that, I think Lawrence as well, is with that objectivity of data, and I personally find this helps your process, share it with the athlete, explain it, get them to buy into it and understand it. Because at the end of the day, that's them on a page. It's them on a screen. It just helps. There's a lot of this where you'll work with certain individuals and they're like, I don't care about that. I don't want to know about it. Just tell me what I need to do. I try and actively, I suppose, encourage and enforce now these guys and go, look, you're making the weight. I'm not. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand what's happening and why. And I think when you get that buy into the data, you know, I, I love it now. I have fighters and, you know, they call it the dreaded DEXA because they're like, oh, see them walking in like they're walking into a prison when they're coming in for that start of Camp Dexter and they're like, oh God, what's this going to look like? But it just helps to give you that level of buy-in and, and a lot of the fighters I work with now, I suppose, understand the context of what they're doing just as much as I do. And it's good for them to know that because they're able to also then subjectively feed back to you and, and, you know, it just makes the process more informed. You know, there's a perfect place for us to end, I guess, which is understanding the limits of one's knowledge. And I think that is an issue that we have going back in time. You talk about weight cut specialists who are probably going to unsubscribe now from my podcast. But basically, that is the issue. I mean, listening to you guys talk about this, you've done your degrees, masters and PhDs or finishing up your PhD, you know, and, and you've very honestly said you just about have scratched the surface of this. There's so much to know. And I guess that's the issue. It's very easy to try and do things without truly understanding just how likely it is to damage your health, damage your performance or worse, you know, and there's a lot to it. And that's obviously the point of this podcast, for example, is to help get some of that knowledge out there. Carl, you wanted to add that. Yeah, just a final point on when I say weight cut specialists as well, Lauren, just because actually I think you raise a good point. I might have done some people a disservice. I'm actually good friends with some guys who've done these courses, but I think that the better guys actively seek out more information. You know, mm. so I've got a couple of, like say, really good friends, really good colleagues who've done those courses, but they realize that that's one element and they need to know more. So yeah, this isn't a witch hunt against weight cut specialists. I think just anybody who calls himself an expert and has everything in life is trying to sell you a service and a product that yeah. isn't necessarily very well means tested. And that can be exactly the same for an established sports nutritionist. This is a process that can be very deleterious to health. So make sure you do your due diligence. Well, look, you're right. And it comes up periodically on the podcast. Everyone, especially in the current climate and economic impact of this pandemic and so on you know people want to make a living and i guess some people will offer advice and services very honestly not realizing the limits to their knowledge and there are some severe risks associated with this as you say they're not the ones that are putting their life on the line and getting in the ring one way or the other but listen thank you so much guys i've really enjoyed having this conversation with you today so much has been discussed, so much could have been discussed, and of course, much of that we'll find in your papers and so on. But if you guys quickly wanted to mention ways in which people can follow you and your work, I will put links into the show notes and when I tweet, etc. But Carl, how do people follow you and stay up to date with your 
expertise and knowledge on this? Yeah, so I suppose one of the best places to follow me is either on Twitter or Instagram. My handle on both is at CLE SPOSI, so S-P-O-S-C-I. My details are on there so people can reach out, get in touch, whatever. Similar to Joe, always happy to talk about this area. And then, yeah, the other one is probably similar to all three of us, PubMed. I've got quite a unique double barrel name, so I'm easy to find. I'm sure Joe will mention as well, we've got a couple of nice papers coming out, one in collaboration together with some other colleagues, CSM position stands. And I've also got a piece coming out in the EGSS special reviewing female athletes on this topic. Lots of exciting research from us both coming. For sure. Great. Joe, how about you? For sure, the best place to catch me is probably on Twitter, which is at Joe John Matthews. Pretty much the only place I'm active, but happy to answer any questions. I've always got time for discussions like this. So thanks for having us on. No, thank you, guys. Well, a newish feature to this podcast is that we're now doing transcripts. So I'll put actual links in the transcripts to your Twitter feeds and research gates, pub meds and websites and so on and so forth. And that transcript and all the other resources and papers and everything that we've gotten into today, if it's relevant, including many of the relevant podcasts that I have discussed that are in one way or another going to complement this discussion today will be linked to on the We Do Science podcast website. And you can learn about all of that stuff as well as what we're up to at the Institute of Performance Nutrition and our very own online advanced level diploma in performance nutrition where we do cover these kinds of topics you can learn all about that at our website at www.theiopn.com once again carl and joe thank you for your time and i of course am lauren bannock and look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon take care everyone and stay safe